0: You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post.
1: This week's United Nations General Assembly started off with a song and a dance that went viral on the Internet. (laughs) That's K-pop megastars, BTS, performing their song, Permission to Dance, inside the empty UN headquarters in New York as a lead up to the main show. And the headline acts at the UN General Assembly this week were Presidents Joe Biden and Xi Jinping.
2: But we're not seeking, say it again, we are not seeking a new Cold War or a world divided into rigid block One country's success does not have to mean another country's
3: failure. And the world is big enough to accommodate common development and progress of all countries.
2: Authoritarianism, the authoritarianism of the world, may seek to proclaim the end of the age of democracy, but they're wrong.
3: The Chinese people have always celebrated and striven to pursue the vision of peace, amity, and harmony. China's never, and will never invade or bully others, or seek hegemony.
2: And while no democracy is perfect, including the United States, We'll continue to struggle to live up to the highest ideals to heal our divisions. And we face down violence and insurrection. Democracy remains the best tool we have to unleash our full human potential. Democracy
3: is not a special right reserved to any individual country, but a right for the people of all countries to enjoy. Recent developments in the international situation show once again that military intervention from the outside and so-called democratic transformation entail nothing but harm.
1: Welcome to the China Geopolitics Podcast, I'm Chad Bray. We're going to hear more about the UN General Assembly from our Washington bureau chief, Rob Delaney. He'll also give us the latest updates on the quad meeting between America, India, Japan, and Australia, if Joe Biden can remember Scott Morrison's name and news that the Quad just might be ready to expand its membership. And we'll also talk to Rob about provocative statements from China's ambassador to the United States in which he quotes Abraham Lincoln and essentially suggests American democracy with Chinese characteristics. And we're going to hear from our Beijing correspondent, Laura Zhao, about a meeting in Beijing last week where a former Chinese diplomat suggested China change its nuclear policy for the US including how it decides when to launch a nuclear attack. And finally, we have a guest, Professor James Chin from the University of Tasmania. He's an expert on governance issues in Southeast Asia, and he'll be discussing the ongoing reaction to AUKUS from Malaysia, Indonesia, and other members of the ASEAN Group. Put on your dancing shoes, and let's get at it. Rob Delaney joins us from Washington. Uh, Rob, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. It's good to be here, Chad. And uh, before we start, let's listen to a clip.
2: Say it again. We are not seeking a new Cold War or a world divided into rigid blocks.
1: That was U.S. President Joe Biden speaking at the United Nations. He said he doesn't want a world that's divided in the blocks. That strongly contrasted with a pre-recorded speech by uh, Chinese President Xi Jinping. Tell us a little bit about the messages the two presidents were sending and and sort of the, the differences you're seeing there.
4: Well, the messages were certainly directed right at each other, I would say, uh, without either of them using the name of the other country. And there are similar talking points that we've heard from the Biden administration since he took office earlier this year. And certainly Xi Jinping has the same talking points that we've heard from uh, from his administration. In particular, that comment that democracy is not a special right reserved for any individual country, and uh, that's is uh, that we can we can all read United States of America into that, especially because Biden has been uh, riffing so much on the idea that uh, democracy and the importance of democracy, and that he's actually planning to host a summit of the world's democracies in the U.S. coming up later this year. So the Chinese are trying to get out ahead of this idea that the U.S. has some kind of monopoly uh, on democracy. And especially he's they're very keen to point out that there's been uh, quite a lot of damage and war and destruction in the wake of a lot of the campaigns that Washington has waged in order to not only uh, fight terrorism, but also to restore democracy or to support democracy.
1: Yeah, it's interesting when, uh, you know, at the same time, you have the Chinese ambassador to the United States throwing the words of Abraham Lincoln back at the president.
4: Yeah, I mean, I would say that's a common technique in in Chinese diplomatic rhetoric. I think they like to project the idea that they are just as astute about the principles uh, of uh, American democracy as Americans are themselves. And uh, I, I think they see it as putting them on a level where they sort of understand both sides, perhaps better than the U.S. side understands anything about China. And and therefore, they want to sort of undermine it by talking about American history. We heard Ambassador Qin Gang; he was speaking in a panel discussion in the U.S., just a day or two days, sorry, two days after President Xi Jinping's address. And uh, we heard, uh, again, similar talking points. The one interesting thing that jumped out was that Qing Gong said or asserted that China is uh, perhaps even more democratic than the US in the way that it has a, what he calls a very consultative process in the way that it's ruled. And it's a process that takes all of the population into account as the government uh, formulates its policies. So if you look at Xi's speech and if you look at Ambassador Qin's speech a couple of days later, you can see that they certainly have stepped back a bit from the very strident wolf warrior diplomacy kind of rhetoric that we've heard over the past couple of years. But they're still putting forth their messages, the, the very same messages but they're doing it in a way that's a bit more diplomatic. And uh, I guess I would also note that when Ambassador Chin spoke, he left out the demands that <clears throat> in order for further progress in U.S.-China relations, The U.S. has this sort of, they they have a list of demands and uh, a list of, and and then the three bottom lines. So the the demands, of course, there's, there's a number of them, including that the U.S. must drop its punitive tariffs. It must drop its sanctions. And uh, it's, no one believes, and certainly I don't don't think that the Chinese government believes that any of that will actually happen. So I, I think it's probably worth noting that those demands that were made when uh, Assistant Secretary of State Wendy Sherman visited Beijing a couple of months ago, they were very front and center and they were very kind of blunt in the way they told her that this has to happen in order for relations to improve. We didn't hear that from Ambassador Qin uh, just yesterday. But again, I I think what we come back to is the fact that they still are delivering the same messages, which is that China has a model that is less destructive, less chaotic, and more in the interests of the development needs of the world than what the US has to offer.
1: Yeah, and and, and Xi's speech as well was, you know, very much along those lines of contrasting the U.S. and decades of war at neighboring Afghanistan and other places versus China and economic development. Who do you think Xi's intended audience was?
4: I think it was directed internally and externally. I, I think it was directed to the world. And I think that's why you didn't have... I think that the tone was not as belligerent or as strident as it could have been. And uh, he was, he was certainly playing the diplomat. And I think if he has any hope of winning world opinion over He probably needs to uh, to sort of deliver these messages in in a more peaceful diplomatic tone. So that's why I I, so that's why I would say I I think the audience was both, but probably more being that it is the U.N. uh, Of course, I think it was uh, perhaps more directed outwardly.
1: And beyond this, given so many world leaders are are in the U.S. for the uh, United Nations uh, uh, General Assembly, Let's turn to a, another meeting that's going to happen, the Quad. It began as a diplomatic gathering on the sidelines of the G20 for the U.S., India, Japan, and Australia. But it seems the narrative is, has changed a bit in the past few days. And there's talk of other nations wanting to join. What can you tell us about that?
4: Well, I, I think what I would say is is that the Quad has become more of a cohesive unit. I would say since uh, certainly this year, and I think pretty much any analyst you speak to about this will tell you it's it's because of China's uh, more assertive military posture, particularly in the South China Sea and in the Taiwan Strait. And at the same time, of course, you had border uh, skirmishes uh, within the past year with, uh, with India. You have uh, China continuing to build uh, more infrastructure. Uh, it, uh, it's trying to build more ports in the Indian Ocean, uh, in particular a project in, in Sri Lanka that has India very concerned. So whereas I would say when before you had the initial meeting of the four uh, the leaders via video link back in March, there I think there was still a lot of questions about whether or not India was going to be really engaged in the Quad. And certainly over the past month or two, Prime Minister Modi is certainly stepping up. And one uh, analyst at uh, the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington yesterday, they had a panel discussion about it, just made the point that, you know, having all four leaders come to Washington in the middle of a pandemic is really quite significant. It really involves a lot of effort and coordination for all four of them to be in Washington at the same time. So I think this, I I think what they're doing is they are sending a message that the Quad is, uh, in fact, a thing that China is going to have to deal with and and as for your your question about others wanting to join we don't we're not really at the point now where where we've seen any indicate any outward indications that other countries want in on this because Really, there are so many overlapping alliances that are in play now that it gets confusing to, you know, take your pick of which one you want to join. I think uh, what a lot of what a lot of analysts are saying at this point is that and this point came out in the CSIS discussion yesterday uh, was that because the Quad is not a formal treaty. It's it's actually a much more flexible kind of arrangement, so that would allow countries like the, uh, like Britain and um, and Canada and the Netherlands to start coordinating their uh, perhaps their military exercises, and uh, to start cooperating more with the Quad as a group. And, uh, and and again, there's no specific plan for any of this to happen. It's sort of just the buzz among analysts at this point that this is something that we may see going forward if China continues to sort of show this very assertive posture in, uh, in, in the South China Sea, uh, in uh, Taiwan Strait and, and, and whatnot.
1: Yeah, it it could be a meeting uh, that could be quite tense because, uh, you know, you, you have the U.S. Uh, recently announcing its military alliance with Australia and the United Kingdom, on which uh, Australia is going to be able to receive uh, nuclear submarine technology, something that the U.S. has refused to share with India. And at the same time, you had uh, Prime Minister Modi make a stop in France on his way to the, the United Nations General Assembly and spend some time with uh, Macron, who is frankly, quite unhappy about the, uh, the the change because France was supposed to sell some nuclear submarine technology to Australia.
4: Yeah, fr- France is, uh, of course, angry about what happened. But I think what's very interesting is that while a lot of the discourse was around the fact that the US and the UK really caused this strain in the overall collection of Western allies called the, 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 the Transatlantic Alliance, the, the, the G7, because of this move that this this new alliance known as AUKUS made. But important to point out that it was really within a week you had uh, this call between President Biden and, uh, and, and President Macron, where they appear to have already started the process of mending fences. Now it's it's hard to to say at this point whether or not there would be a higher diplomatic price that Washington and London will have to pay and Australia will have to pay. But a week ago, certainly when France withdrew its ambassador from Washington, I don't think anyone expected at that point that you were going to see this sort of the very beginnings of a rapprochement with uh, b- between Biden and, and Macron within a week of, of when you had that blow up.
1: And, you know, following up on that, you know, what what is Biden really trying to accomplish in this meeting of the Quad? You know, do you have a sense of what's in the agenda?
4: Uh, certainly, there's going to be some announcements about what they plan to do in terms of bolstering the global distribution of vaccines. That was one of the in- intentions when they had their initial meeting back in Uh, Sorry, the initial leaders meeting back in March. That was that was one of the goals. Of course, since then, India got hit with a terrible wave with the Delta variant and that set back their efforts. So I think they're going to kind of redouble on that front. They are certainly going to uh, talk about what they can do in terms of climate change. Uh, One analyst was talking about how one of their big challenges in that respect, uh, not, not only for COVID vaccines, not only for equipment and, and infrastructure that is needed to address climate change, uh, and also things like uh, common standards for 5G telecom technology. Uh, one of the challenges they face is that so much of the equipment, precursors for vaccines, so many of them, a large chunk of them come from China, When you're talking about the manufacture of products that are needed to address climate change, again, solar panel production, the raw materials you need to make batteries for uh, electric vehicles. A lot of this uh, happens in in China. And I think that's the reason why what we're hearing is that they are going to uh, spend a lot of time trying to figure out how are they going to make progress uh, jointly on all of these fronts that is uh, COVID vaccines, climate change, telecom infrastructure, some sort of open land uh, network between uh, all of them and, and perhaps other Western allies. So there'll be a lot of talk about that, but I don't think there'll, w- there will be any specific announcements of how that, or, or exactly what all of this is going to yield.
1: So I guess a socially distanced photo of the four leaders may be the best thing we can expect.
4: I think so. I mean, I think they will certainly spin it to make it sound like there's a lot coming. And they're going to, uh, of course, uh, assert that there is is a lot on the way. But I, I think there will still be a lot of questions when it wraps up in Washington.
1: Well, Rob, that's going to be a very exciting week, a lot to talk about. Uh, look forward to reading your coverage on com. Thanks so much.
4: Thanks very much, Chad. Good talking to you.
1: Laura Jo has been covering uh, China's uh, diplomatic relations and Sino-U.S. relations for the last 11 years with the SCMP. She's in our Beijing office and joins us now. Hello, Laura.
0: Hi, Chad. How are you?
1: Good. Thanks for joining. So, Laura, the, the headlines around the world have been dominated by the surprise announcement of a new arms treaty uh, known as AUKUS. It's uh, between the U.S., Australia, and the U.K. Um, and you follow a story about the meeting that by pure coincidence, happened in Beijing on the very same day, in which a uh, former diplomat called for China to, quote, fine-tune its nuclear weapons policy. So could you tell us more about that?
0: Yes, sure. The meeting last Wednesday was co-hosted by China Arms Control and Disarmament Association, which has been in existence for 20 years According to its website, it is a research group under China's foreign ministry, and most of its members are experts on arms controls in China, as well as former diplomats and military officers in China.
1: And tell us a little bit about what it sort of uh, sparked your interest in what was said at this, uh, at this meeting.
0: I think the meeting is pretty important because Chinese foreign minister Wang Yi also delivered a video speech. In the meeting in which he also said China should continue to work together with the international community to establish an international arms control uh, system that is just and reasonable. According to the transcript of the meeting, former diplomats uh, Sha Zukang, who is also Chinese ambassador for disarmament affairs to the UN in Geneva in the 1990s. He mentioned that China uh, had taken a moral high ground uh, with its pledge to not to be the first to use nuclear weapons in any time and under any circumstances. But maybe it's time to change this reference to the US now.
1: Yeah, and by first uh, use of, of nuclear weapons, you know, other, otherwise means uh, first strike. And, you know, that sort of seems at odds with the group he was talking to, the China Arms Control and Disarmament Association.
0: Yes. Uh, during the meeting, he said, may not apply to the U.S. unless China and the U.S. negotiate a mutual understanding on no first use of nuclear weapons. And he also said it was only a matter of time before China joined an arms control pact with the U.S. and Russia. But uh, this is all depend on the Americans and their progress on nuclear arms reduction.
1: Yeah, it, it, it's pretty amazing that, that China isn't a member of, say, the, the Salt agreements between the, the U.S. and, and Russia. Um, in, in your piece that you filed to SEMP.com, you, you also talked about Shah calling for China to ignore the uh, U.S. multilateral export control regime when it comes to missile technology and develop its own rules. Can you unpack that for us?
0: Sure. Since 1987, the U.S. got the, a group of seven nations uh, to agree to the missile technology control regime which regulates the sales of missile technology to other nations. China is not part of this agreement, but has said that it will abide by it. Basically what diplomats saw called out the US for its double standard, because he said like uh, the US has allowed South Korea to develop its own missiles with technologies from the United States it has deployed anti-missile systems in Japan and South Korea, uh, the close neighbors to China, and also sold arms to Taiwan and increased strategic containment of China. He also mentioned Iran nuclear deals. China has signed with the U.S., Russia, and the Europe. He said, like, if the U.S. withdraws from the deal, everyone should... Because he said uh, countries, including China, should not create an impression that China is special. That's why he said, like, regarding the Iran nuclear deals, if the U.S. decided to quit, another countries should. Otherwise, it will give an impression that the U.S. is different.
1: And, you know, the, this sort of comes in, in the backdrop where, where you had the Trump administration that, that was very much rejecting things such as the, the, the Iran deal. And how does that sort of affect China's response when it comes to Iran? I, I believe in your piece you were talking about how China said that, that basically they've abided by it, the Russians have abided by it, but the U.S. has, has gone away and, and that maybe it's time to rethink the whole thing. At the same time, uh, you know, in addition to Iran, that the U.S. Has, has concerns about, you know, other uh, – other, you know, proliferation in other countries, and in particular, uh, North Korea. Did North Korea come up at this event?
0: Yes. Uh, Shah also called the U.S. to ease its sanctions on North Korea, because China has repeatedly called for easing sanctions on North Korea after uh, Pyongyang dismantled its reactor complex in 2019. Shah said China should not just say, but do something. For example, taking a tougher stance in these multilateral negotiations on North Korea nuclear deal.
1: And you know, it, in this environment, normally when you, you, you would have a former diplomat from China talking about things like first strike capabilities, talking about sort of changing the uh, proliferation um, rules about uh, missile technology, That would sort of dominate the front pages. But at the same time this was happening, you had on the very same day, in fact, you had Joe Biden at the White House with Boris Johnson on one monitor and Scott Morrison, who he struggled a bit with his name, on the other monitor and talking about selling nuclear-powered submarines as well as U.S.-made long-range missiles to Australia. So could you tell us about how this played in state media in China and on social media? Was there much of a response?
0: I think it's pretty interesting because now uh, the Chinese state media uh, has for days played up these narratives that the U.S. has stepped in the back of France, its oldest ally, which shows nothing but a selfish U.S. which has always put its interests first. And also, a oh, Weibo, Chinese uh, popular social media, some Chinese Internet users also suggest that probably the French can ask the U.S. to return the Statue of Liberty, which was a gift to the American people in 1800s.
1: Yeah, um, I'm also not sure the, you know, they could ask for French fries back, but I'm not sure the Americans would be willing to give that up either. Laura, thank you for joining us. You know, by the time many of our listeners hear this, we'll be seeing the leaders of India, Japan, and Australia gathering at the White House. I'm sure China and the state media will have a lot to say about this coming the weekend. Laura Zhao, thanks so much for joining us.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Professor James Chin joins us on the podcast. Professor, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Wanted to uh, have you take us through your analysis on ASEAN's reaction to the new Australia, UK, US, or AUKUS alliance that's been announced.
5: So thank you very much for your kind invitation to speak about AUKUS and the reaction in Southeast Asia. So I think primarily the sort of reaction we're coming out of Southeast Asia is not surprising. I think it's very important to start with uh, the sort of anxieties felt by Southeast Asian countries. And here I'm talking about primarily Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia. So the sort of reaction that we're seeing is that basically, number one, we don't like this idea of Australia sort of upgrading its navy. Uh, We can understand why you want to do it because eventually you have to do it. But the idea of a nuclear submarine is sort of taking it up to the next level. And I think a lot of people in Southeast Asia have the opinion that, you know, once you go with nuclear power subs, the next logical step is nuclear weapons. So that's the first point. The second point is, I think, a lot of countries like uh, Malaysia, Indonesia, uh, they are quite unique in the sense that, especially for Malaysia, most people do not realize that Malaysia is the only country in Southeast Asia where it sort of straddles both part of the South China Sea so you got Peninsula, Malaysia on one side, and you got the states of Sabah and Sarawak on Borneo Island. So they're very sensitive to what's happening in the South China Sea. So there's a great fear that this will lead to increased competition between the West and China. As you know, the number one potential conflict zone in East Asia nowadays is actually the South China Sea. It's no longer North Korea. If you look at the number of reported incidents between the US Navy and, say, the Chinese Navy, almost all the incidents are now coming out of Southeast Asia. I'm not talking about direct conflict, but I'm talking about what they call close incidents. So that's one part. And secondly, there's also been a lot of incidents between the Chinese navies who are in that region, sort of having, you know, uh, how shall I put it, Uh, not very polite encounters with the Navy, say of the Philippines, Malaysia, all those countries, because they're there supposedly to protect the Chinese fishing fleet. But the problem is that the waters, the fishing fleet, is fishing on it's what we call contested waters. So it's not only China claiming the waters. Countries like Malaysia, Philippines, Vietnam are also claiming those waters belongs to them. So for a host, host of reasons, I think uh, the Asian countries are very worried that if you're bringing nuclear subsidies, this will add to to you know another layer of conflict. The third reason I think is because if you look at ASEAN as a whole. ASEAN, since its inception, since the late 60s and early 70s, have always maintained that Southeast Asia is a nuclear-free zone. And in fact, they've actually signed a treaty that says that you know, we want this place to be a nuclear-free zone. Now, we know that the major powers don't really take this seriously, but the major powers have also sort of kept quiet about it. So this is the first time where it's very clear that Australia, once it's upgraded the nuclear sub, uh, they expect the sub to play a support role and especially the U.S. Navy or the Western Navy when they come to confront China in the South China Sea. So for those reasons, I think uh, there was a lot of anxiety. And of course, the wider picture is that Southeast Asia is sort of caught up in the arms race, and this will bring it up to another one or two levels. So I think a lot of Southeast Asian nations are very worried. But having said that, uh, I also have to tell you that some Asian countries, uh, including ASEAN countries, are actually... Uh, quietly, uh, you know, quite happy about what is happening in this region, especially with the announcement, because I think the other big story or the wider story is really about the rise of China, and it's really the rise of China that is forcing all these countries to behave in a certain way. So a lot of these countries in ASEAN, for example, the Philippines, Vietnam, know, they're thinking that you know, for the past ten years, China has sort of you know manipulated us in Southeast Asia. Uh, they try talking to us, but at the same time, they're building military bases in all these islands in Southeast Asia. And we really need to rebalance the sort of geostrategic interest between the West and China. Because at the end of the day, all these countries want to make sure that South China uh, Sea is sort of open to all. And the only way to guarantee that it is sort of open to all is if all the major powers have a sort of the right balance.
1: But within that, Professor, is, is, you know, the potential... As you said, some people fear of of having nuclear weapons within the region. Does that push it to a point where the response is is, is a bit too much and a bit scary? Uh, you know, you know what kind of actions could we see sort of ASEAN take to sort of counteract uh, Australia you know first having nuclear submarines, but potentially the next step?
5: So as a whole, I think uh, you will see ASEAN will probably uh, collectively may issue some sort of a statement. Uh, But the reality is that ASEAN has sort of lost a lot of credibility in the last year and a half. Uh, The reason is because of what is happening in Myanmar. Uh, People expect ASEAN to deal with the Myanmar crisis. And I think the general consensus is that ASEAN has lost its eye on the ball. Uh, They try very hard to engage with the military rulers in Myanmar. Uh, That has not worked. And a lot of people are saying that this idea of ASEAN centrality, Uh, The best way to describe ASEAN centrality is that ASEAN countries believe that ASEAN or the countries of Southeast Asia should decide what will go on or what will happen in the region. And many of them are quite uh, unhappy that, you know, what has happened in Washington, London and Canberra is that basically uh, these three capitals have sort of told ASEAN that, you know, we don't really care about ASEAN centrality. We don't really care what you think. Uh, We will do what we want because we really need to confront China. So I think there's a bit of element of of unhappiness over this issue. But I think overall, I think, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the countries, ASEAN, are sort of divided on this issue. We might see a statement, but it will be sort of uh, not really hard-hitting statements like what we saw coming out of Indonesia and Malaysia.
1: And going back to sort of, uh, you know, ASEAN centrality, you know, is, you know, this officially sort of the, the U.S. making Australia its deputy sheriff in the region, so to speak?
5: I think for a very long time, uh, the countries of ASEAN uh, have always seen Australia as part of the Western camp. I think it's always widely understood, even before the moniker of deputy sheriff was used. They always saw Australia as sort of representing uh, U.S. interests, especially the way Australia has behaved in the South Pacific Islands. Uh, It was always widely understood that if the U.S. is not keeping an eye on the Pacific Islands, it was the Australians keeping an eye on you know, on behalf of the Americans in the South Pacific. So this is very much an extension that, you know, that Australia is sort of playing uh, playing a support, uh, support role in terms of what the U.S. is trying to do. And I also think that uh, one of the reasons why this has become such a controversial issue is because of the timing. Uh, people keep forgetting this is hardly a month out when the Taliban has taken control of Afghanistan. So I think one of the signals the Americans are really trying to send not only in Southeast Asia, but throughout the world, is that, you know, we may have withdrawn from Afghanistan, but it doesn't mean uh, we don't play the game anymore. We're still a major power. We're still capable of building alliances, and we're still capable of confronting China.
1: And, Professor, I wanted to uh, sort of follow up on on that idea, um, you know, in a, in a piece that you've written that's on scmp.com. You talk about Scott Morrison giving assurances that, the uh, Australia isn't interested in nuclear weapons, but is there concerns, you know, of an arms race happening here? You know, could could, could we see Indonesia, for example, trying to add missiles to its navy? You know it, what what do you think think is out there right now in terms of the mindset?
5: So Southeast Asia has been in the arms race for the last ten to fifteen years. The reason why it hasn't received a lot of coverage is because many countries in Southeast Asia, has sort of presented uh, buying or or upgrading the military arms as part of the modernization process. So in fact, uh, there's been sort of a mini arms race in Southeast Asia for many years. The conflict over the South China Sea is not something that's new. Those of you who have watched the region uh, knew that it was coming for a very long time. In fact, uh, there was a thing called code of conduct, which is uh, they're supposed to set up you know, the, the sort of uh, rules and, and, and about how the military will behave in Southeast Asia. They're supposed to, to, to sign this code of conduct with China. And that thing is still at a talking stage after 20 years. So this thing is, is, is not new. The arms race is not new. But what is new is this uh, uh, introduction of this nuclear element. Because previously, uh, all this we were basically dealing with conventional weapons, not nuclear weapons.
1: And also at the same time, uh, recently, Wang Yi, the uh, Chinese foreign minister, he just toured through the region and, and you know, has, has visited with a number of the ASEAN countries. So I, I wanted to ask you, how, you know, do you think China tries to counter this diplomatically, this, this alliance?
5: Well, I think China will have to do something. So China is already, as you know, try to try to sign up for the CTTP. Uh, they're trying to engage uh, even more with Southeast Asia. But the reality is that if you talk to uh, members of the uh, Southeast Asian political elite, uh, their attitude towards China is that China is going to be a rising power. There's no doubts about it. Uh, But the other reality people keep forgetting is that this is not the first time that Southeast Asia has faced the China shadow. Before the Europeans came to colonize Southeast Asia, there was already the Chinese shadow over Southeast Asia. The people of Southeast Asia has always lived under the China shadow for hundreds of years, even before the Europeans came to this part of the world. So the attitude of many of the elites in Southeast Asia is that we have lived under China for a very, very long time and uh, the coming back or the rise of China is nothing new for us. Uh, We have to deal with China. We can't choose our neighbours. We're in the same neighbourhood. Reality is that Southeast Asia is the backyard of China and increasingly with a lot of our economies tying up with China, especially under the BRI, uh, Belt and Road uh, Initiative. Uh, It's a question of uh, trying to make sure that uh, China at the very least recognize our sovereignty and will not go too far uh, in terms of of what happens in the South China Sea. Uh, You also have to remember that uh, the South China Sea is interesting in that it's not really uh, all about China and America. Uh, it is also about many other countries as well. Uh, for example, uh, people don't realize that even though Korea and Japan has been keeping quite quiet, or even Taiwan, uh, a lot of the energy supply actually passed through the Straits of Malacca, through South China Sea, you know, all the tankers, all the ships, they actually pass it through. The reason why people are sort of keeping quiet is because uh, a lot of people think that, you know, uh, the less you talk about this issue, the easier it is to come to some sort of code of conduct between all the major powers.
1: And Professor, is there anything else that that maybe we should be paying attention to as as, as this issue develops uh, in
5: the coming weeks and months? I think one of the things to watch out for is the sort of uh, Chinese counter-diplomatic offence. So it is it is very clear that China will now have the upper hand. Uh, because China can go to, uh, especially countries that are more friendly towards it in Southeast Asia, in ASEAN countries, and say that, you know, uh, look at what the West is doing. They're sort of trying to, uh, you know, bring the nuclear stuff into Southeast Asia. Uh, yes, we may be bad, we may be building military installations, do all sorts of stuff, scaring away your fishermen. But we've never threatened to bring nuclear stuff to Southeast Asia. It's actually the West that is, you know, doing that. So, at the end of the day, it might be better for you guys to support us. And also, it's, it will be interesting to see uh, uh, which other countries who should come up openly on the side of the Chinese uh, versus the Americans. For example, we know that the Filipinos have come up openly on the side of the Americans. Uh, sort of uh, the countries that have very close ties with China, like Malaysia, is all sort of leaning towards China. Uh, we're not sure where Indonesia stands. Uh, but the bottom line is is this thing will die down very soon. Probably by early next year, just a few months ago, uh, people have forgotten about this.
1: Professors, James Chin, thanks for joining us. It's been very informative and look forward to talking to you in the future. Thank you. That's all we have this week. In other geopolitical news, last Thursday, China requested to join the Pacific Trade Pact, the CPTPP. And just yesterday, Taiwan did the same. All eyes are on the 11 countries who are part of the agreement as they have to juggle handling both Beijing and Taipei. And we'll also have to wait and see how this will affect China's ongoing trade tensions with Australia. For the latest news and analysis on all of this, you can go to scmp.com. And don't forget to follow the SCMP Political Economy team on Twitter at scmp_economy. Economy. I'm at Chad Bray. Stay safe, have a good weekend, and we'll see you next week.